Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Rob Forsyth, co-founder and CEO of Milk Movement, a company focused on getting the right milk to the right place at the right time. They build cloud software to provide actionable insights across the entire dairy supply chain. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. First off, your company name is by far one of the best names I've seen in a while. For for those who are just listening, movement is spelled M-O-O-V-E-M-E-N-T. So how did you come up with the name? Uh, I like to say the second O is silent, when, so you don't have to pronounce it. But um, it's my co-founder, all his credit. He he liked the corniness of it, but like we actually do milk logistics, so it just works. Um, and it kind of, I think it came down to supply chain software can be pretty boring and mundane. And so we try to have a bit of fun with it. Um, there's puns all over our website. We've got Maureen, our kind of mascot. She's everywhere. She's our chatbot. Um, so yeah, we, we lean into it. I thought it was fun. Your entire brand is very playful, which to your point is not very usual in things that are a little bit more like supply chain or more like really uh, nitty gritty software. Yeah, absolutely. How did you first get into the space and kind of come to the the idea behind Milk Movement? It goes back to my co-founder again. So we met in college um, doing our undergrad commerce degrees. And my background is actually in oil and gas supply chain with companies like ExxonMobil, Worley Parsons, um, things like that. And he was then in dairy supply chain and at a dairy cooperative. And when he was there, he was just realized um, how paper-based the industry was. And then there, that there wasn't really any custom dairy software um, that helped him do his job better. I think he's one of those people that, you know, when something doesn't make sense, he doesn't just take it. He finds a way to make it make sense. <laughs> um, and so he came up with the idea for it. Um, and that cooperative became our first customer. And then uh, I came in a little bit later in 2018 after that customer was live. And he realized that dairy cooperatives all across North America at that point needed this. And now we know the world. Who are the major players in the dairy supply chain? Good question. I always like to level set because, um, you know, it, there's, it's complex. It's a complex supply chain. Um, so before milk or yogurt or anything reaches your grocery store shelves, um, it starts with the dairy producer. So we call farmers producers in agriculture, especially dairy. Um, dairy producer, a hauling company will come to so the hauler. They'll come and pick the milk up at the farm and take it to a processing plant. So there's the processors as well. Um, there's a lab that tests every load of milk that's picked up. Uh, and then the last group is the dairy cooperative. So they're often owned by the dairy farmers. Um, and they're like what we like to call the power node in the supply chain. Um, so when they choose to use Milk Movement, they take they mandate that their haulers use our app. They mandate that the labs use us. They mandate that the processing plants use us. And of course, the producers that they own use us. So um, that's why we work with the cooperative, because they actually have the ability to push us through the whole supply chain. Has anybody tried to verticalize that piece, meaning owning all the components of the producers, the processors, the lab, the haulers, or is it still really fragmented? 
Walmart's trying really hard right now. Um, and, and to their credit, they're, they're doing it. Uh, yeah. I think, um, some groups will try and successfully try, but maybe not all of it. So there's some CPG companies, um, that, you know, they're still processors by definition, but they will develop long-term contracts with the farms or the producers. So they won't go through a cooperative to get their milk. Um, they'll go directly to producers. But in some way, they kind of become a cooperative because then they're paying the producers and, you know, they have long-term contracts. So you build relationships. So in some way, they're kind of a cooperative slash processor. Um, and we see that the cooperatives at times will bring the labs in-house or bring the haulers in-house as well. Um, but very rare do we see all five, or, you know, someone try to bring all five in, but Walmart's taking a kick at it. Interesting. As they do, they're actually pretty innovative. I remember when they first launched at Walmart Labs, that was very, very new for a traditional brick and mortar retailer to try to do anything in e-commerce. Is on the cooperative side, is that still pretty fractionalized and long tail or has that been consolidated in North America? It honestly changes. It's consolidating quarter by quarter. Um, Yeah. So Dairy Farmers America is the largest um, by far. Um, and then they've been growing successfully and to their credit, you know, picking up um, a lot of cooperatives and farms across the country. I almost think it's definitely reaching long tail, but I do think, um, you know, as consumer preferences are changing um, and, and just as the industry is changing, there is more of a focus on you know, smaller grass fed cooperatives or organic cooperatives or things like that. And so we're actually seeing a bit of um, almost a bucking of that trend and smaller groups forming and kind of leaving, you know, the large mothership maybe and, and forming kind of their own cooperative or, or deciding not to join the large cooperative. So it's been going on for about a decade or more, but we're almost seeing a little bit of a, a shift now back. In the United States, how much control over the either the cooperatives or the producers does individual states have versus more uh, across the country? In the United States, it's uh, the control... I mean, it's at the federal level. There is in some states and more on the Northeast, there is some state level control. It's more at the federal level and it really comes into pricing um, and make, and setting the price that, that, that processing plants can charge and then all the way back to then what producers can charge for their milk and what the cooperative can charge the plant. So that's usually when they get involved. Um, in other countries like Canada, uh, it's actually supply managed. So producers can only produce what the government mandates that Canadians are, or, or the government believes can't Canadians will actually consume to try to keep supply and demand um, at par or at equilibrium. Uh, but we're the last country in the world that does that. So the U.S. is they try to stay out of most things except pricing. <laughs> it's more like the oil and gas space in that regard. Yeah, on the Canadian exactly. side. How so? Explain to me how the economics actually work in the sector because to me it it seems crazy that I can go and buy a gallon of milk for four bucks, let's say, in California. And yet you have so many different middlemen and process, you know, pieces of the puzzle. So how does how do the economics kind of make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think like anything, um, you know, the groups that are taking like anything in agriculture, I will say, um, you know, the groups that are actually taking things and processing them and putting, you know, the brands on things and putting marketing dollars behind things. Um, they often take the biggest piece of the pie. Um, it really is state by state. So I don't want to start getting into, you know, which percentage the cooperative all, always holds or which percentage of, or which margin the, the processor always, or um, farm always takes. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, historically, producers are always fighting for a little bit more of their piece of the pie. Like I said, that's not just dairy. Um, I, I mean, our place in this is 
is really trying to find efficiencies across the whole area, um, really looking, because there's not a lot of data in the supply chain, uh, in the dairy supply chain. So trying to understand um, how the routes work, how the routes, are they optimized properly? Um, you know, do we always have to take, does this truck always have to go to these three farms or is there a different way of doing things? Um, you know, from an environmental point of view, what the cows are, um, what type of feed they're, e they're eating and what the environmental impacts of that are and then what the cost based on that is. Um, to, go to, to answer your question, I guess the biggest unit is kind of what we call hundred weight. So that's a hundred pounds of milk um, and everything comes down to hundred weight in dairy. So it's um, what is a cost to get a hundred pounds of milk to market? What's the software? What's the hardware on the farm? What's the transportation? All of that. Um, and everyone's kind of competing for their piece of the pie of that hundred weight, if that makes sense. Where is the biggest bottleneck today? Uh, it depends who you ask. <laughs> For me, it's that my opinion is that um, dairy supply chains have largely been static. And so a processor, let's call it Danone, General Mills, Nestle, it doesn't matter who, they would go to a cooperative and they would say, we need 50 loads of milk a day at these three plants for the next five years. And they would sign a contract saying that. Um, and then really the cooperative is just supplying milk. And, and sometimes that milk might be one day, it might be high protein, one day it might be lower protein, or there's a variety of things. Um, but farms all get paid based on, you know, what the protein of that milk is, what the fat content, things like that are. And now consumers are actually starting to say, like, if you look at Coca-Cola, Fairlife, that's a high protein, low lactose product. It's doing very well. It's, it's outpacing almond, oat, um, all those different types of milk as well. And so they're now saying, well, wait, we, we, don't, we, may, we don't necessarily want the same kind of milk for the next two years. Like if we're trending or we're showing the consumers are going to want a high protein yogurt in three months, we want the ability to work within our supply chain to get that, to meet consumer demands. And so I really think it's shifting to a dynamic supply chain um, so that these CPG companies that are interacting with consumers can actually give them the perfect product that they want um, rather than look at their supply chain and say, we know consumers want that, but we're on these long-term contracts and we can't really change them. And so what we get is what we get. Um, that's like the biggest thing I think is that the supply chain is not nimble enough to respond to consumer preferences. That's super interesting. How, on the, um, the you know changes in protein content of the milk, is that something that's done purely based off of the feed or the cows or the environment? Or is that something that's manipulated on behalf of the producers? So manipulated, but but with feed and different things like that. Um, so season, there's seasonality, absolutely. Um, different times of year, cows produce different types of milk. Um, a lot of that you can't control. Yeah, like the makeup of milk in Arizona is different than the Northeast in different times of year. Um, but feed is the biggest thing that you can change. I mean, there's, you know, thousands of types of feed. Um, and you can, yeah, change components, change when you feed, all these different things um, to try to optimize what you're trying to optimize for. So you may be trying to get a higher fat content for, for whatever reason. You may be able to try to get higher protein. Um, or yeah, so it, there's a lot of things you can change. Do you know what they add to the feed to increase either the fat or the protein content? I'm not a nutritionist, so I'm not going... I have some ideas, but I don't want to go down that path. <laughs> it's, I didn't realize that that was even being done. Uh, on the, you know, when you go to the store and you're buying, you know, cow milk, and you have some that's whole milk, 2% milk, 1% milk. Where is that part happening in terms of the, you know, creating the different categories of milk? Yeah. So it, it's coming in at the processing facility at the plant, like we call it. Um, but there's different classes of milk. There's class one, class two, class three, class four milk. And that is kind of the rating system on how um, 
how, I guess, how high the quality is of that milk. And so um, how high the quality is will depend on whether it's drinking milk, um, which type of drinking milk, and whether it's, or then turn into yogurt or butter or things like that. So um, going back to that point of kind of that dynamic supply chain, like it, it's very, it's almost impossible for a plant to decide to change from, you know, class one milk to three milk overnight because the supply chain was set. And, you know, the producers are going back to the feed piece, like the producers are buying a certain kind of feed to be able to supply this for the next few months. And it's very hard to switch that uh, overnight right now. Yeah, it makes sense, especially given how many steps there are in the process and how many individual companies, groups, people have to touch it. Yeah, It feels like a lot of moving pieces there. Yeah, but then also interestingly combined with how fast dairy, so you have 72 hours from when a cow is milked to when like drop dead milk must be processed into whatever, either drinking milk. And so it's interesting because you've got a kind of a, a slow supply chain with a lot of individuals having to work together, but you have a, a very short shelf life. It's a perishable product. So those two things make it quite complex. And is that 72 hours the point at which it's pasteurized? Just the past where you would no longer trust the quality. Yeah, it is. Got it. Got it. And for those 72 hours, does it also require some kind of cold chain? Yeah, you, you have to keep an optimal temperature um, for sure. And so it's like going back to regionality, some parts of the country, that's quite easy to keep. Um, if you're in Arizona and it's 110 degrees, uh, it's it's harder to keep it. So yes, there's a cold chain for the actual um, the bulk tank, the truck that's actually taking the fluid milk around. And then of course, once it's turned into products, you know, yogurt, ice cream, different things like that. Interesting. I've, in looking at various types of supply chains, one thing I've seen over and over again is anything touching cold chain supply chain is way more complex. So yes. what areas of complexity has it added into the dairy industry? Uh, well, I think going back to, they figured it out, I, I would say, you know, they figured out how to keep milk at the optimal temperature. Um, and we, so we track temperature in the milk from one farm, like it goes from farm to plant as well. Um, like I said, unless there's a few months that it's, you know, you're in Arizona uh, and it's kind of hard to keep it cold. We only ever see a fluctuation of one to two degrees. So it actually, they figured out how to keep it and then we'll get the optimal temperature. Um, I think what's interesting now though, is um, getting into more IOT and, and actually rather than taking a temperature reading at pickup and then a temperature reading at drop off, um, actually tracking the temperature uh, through the whole route, right? Um, and where it gets important is if there is a, something happens, maybe there's a, I mean, traffic jam seems a little facetious, but like if there's a blizzard and a highway is down for 12 hours, right? Um, currently in most states, there's no way to actually track the temperature of that milk live unless you go take, take it. So making sure that you can actually, you know, making sure that the quality is being upheld while trucks are going through things. I mean, they're driving across states at times. And so it's it, the shift now is more about real-time tracking rather than the beginning and the end. Interesting. On the logistics pieces, do the uh, the producers, or sorry, the um, processors, so the people who are turning the milk into, real, into products, do they own the logistics components too of getting it from the dairy co-ops? Or how, how does that come into play? It's often the cooperative owns that 90% of the time. Um, and they have either third-party haulers or vertically integrated haulers, but it's it's most times third-party hauling contracts. And you can see a, a cooperative use up to you know thirty, forty, fifty different hauling companies um, to to manage their region. So it's quite complex there as well. It sounds like the co-ops have the most power in this in kind of the the players. Is that accurate? 
yes. I mean, it, it once again, it's regional. So um, it has to, you know, there are some regions where the processing plant has taken the farms and vertically integrated them. And then they would hold then the third party contracts for the haulers and the labs and things like that. Um, there's not really a cooperative in that system. There's a few states like that. But for the most part, if there is a cooperative at play and, a pro- and processing plants are going to the cooperatives to purchase milk, then yes, the cooperative um, has the power, has the control kind of to, to decide how the, how the market's going to happen. Yeah. How, how the supply chain is going to unfold. Got it. Got it. Yeah. There's different talk- power. I, I would just say that. Like, I'm sure it depends what type of power you're looking at, because in some regions, you know, I'm sure that the processing plant would say, well, no, we're, we're the buyers. We are deciding what we're buying. But um, for more about, you know, who's going to come together in the supply chain and get milk from farm to plant, the, the cooperatives definitely make that decision. It feels like they're the choke point between, you, you know, some on one end, you have the producers who should hold some power because ultimately they create the raw product. And then you have the processors who are the ones that are the buyers and the, the purse holders. But the choke point in the middle feels like the, the co-ops. Yes. And then another layer is that often they're run by a producer board, which, you know, is 10, 15 dairy producers um, who sit on the board. And so when you're talking to a cooperative, you're often talking to you know employees of the cooperative. Um, and it, you can sometimes forget that, you know, you're answering to a larger body of producers as well, right? And so it's all interconnected. <laughs> it sounds very complex. Well, <laughs> I want to hear a little bit more around the product that you guys have built at Milk Movement. Can you walk me through what that looks like today? Absolutely. I, there's really two ways we like to, two aspects to understand it. Um, the first is our handheld or it's just an app, right? It's our driver app um, on iOS or Android. And so what we really sought out to do was to replace the pen and paper system that we're still seeing largely across America. Um, and that's drivers entering, going to a farm and entering, writing out what farm they're at, um, how much milk they're picking up, what the temperature of that milk is. In some regions like the Northeast, you may actually do three or four pickups to fill a truck. And then you may go drop off at two different plants to empty your truck. And so, you know, you've got a list of all your pickups, all your drop offs, all your weights, et cetera, and your temperatures. Um, it's a carbon copy, you know, book. So then at the end of the day, they'll rip that into six pages and um, one will go to the processing plant, one will go to the cooperative, one to the farm. Um, And historically, everyone's then entering that data into their own ERP or legacy system or spreadsheet. And so you can even see right there how five different people can have a different idea of what happened in a day based on how they've entered that data. Um, So our driver app. Uh, first off, we everyone has access to that one true source of data. Um, so no one's then taking that data away and putting it in their own system. They're all using Milk Movement to get that production data. So they're living in there. But then we also pull the telematic data from uh, the device as well. So we can see where drivers are. Are they ahead of schedule? Are they behind custom notifications the whole way through so that a plant can get notified if a driver is really close or things like that? Um, that's kind of the first piece is that driver app. And that's where we get all of our production quantity data. And then the rest is um, really the Milk Movement portal. And that's where you, everyone has their own kind of set of permissions and controls. So the admin portal is the cooperative portal where they get to see everything that's happening in their supply chain. They're running um, you know, payroll information out of that for producers. They're running invoicing information out of that so that they um, know how to pay or what to charge their customers, how much to pay um, their farmers, things like that. Um, but really, everyone actually comes in that system and uses it. So the processing plant will come into Milk Movement into our scheduling feature, and they'll order their milk for the next three days. And then the cooperative will look across um, their farms and then figure out where to fulfill those orders. And then the hauling companies are actually in that system too. So then they'll get routes built and sent to them saying, you now have these 10 routes 
And then the drivers are there too. So the beauty of Milk Movement is that we're rather than taking information from every different system and trying to make it match, everyone just lives out of that system. So a lot less emails, a lot less phone calls, things like that. Who's been the hardest constituent to get to adopt it? The drivers, but they don't. Uh, and you know, it's like I was on a call yesterday and uh, it's so interesting what happens, but one of the cooperatives said that, um, you know, one of the drivers at a hauling company they thought would be the hardest one. I think they said he's 69 or 70 and he like is obsessed with it, loves it. And he's like trying to teach all of his colleagues how to use it. And so they were like, just send them to him. Like he, he loves showing people how to use it. And so people surprise you. Um, there's some politics between a cooperative and their hauling company um, that we try to stay out of. And so, you know, maybe there's a history of them not getting along. And then so we're another layer of something that the cooperative is telling the hauling company to do. Um, but I would say that our customers, the co-ops are very good at saying, if you're going to move our milk, we're moving to milk movement and you have to use us. Um, and by hook or by crook, we usually get there. <laughs> Yeah, it's still so shocking to me how many industries still rely on pen and paper. Yes. And then the pen and paper information still needs to get into a computer at some point, needs to get into some form of system of record. And, uh, you know, we're still chipping away. Yeah, there is a sense, you know, there's a sense that that is the most accurate. And and in, and in ways, like, let, don't get me wrong, like, you know, dairy is, and agriculture, they are less trusting of tech. And, and often they, they have a reason to be, right? Like there are things that do go wrong. And then people often, like something goes wrong. And the first thing you'll say is, where's the paper trail? Um, and, when that, and when that happens, it's like, but I think it's what we've really tried to show them is that just the accuracy of the data is actually much more profound by using our system. Um, and, and we've got redundancies in place to make sure we never lose any data, right? But I think there, there's a shift. There's a, definitely a comfort, a comfort factor with pen and paper in front of you. Absolutely. And it's just a uh, routine, right? You're yeah. in your routine. You've done this for decades and now all of a sudden you're being asked to shift. Yeah. The story I like to tell a lot and, and I, it was told to me is that, um, you know, the snake oil salesman, the story of like people of snake oil salesmen, that actually comes from agriculture and it comes from a snake oil salesman would go to a farm and um, sell snake oil and say, put this on your crops and it'll double your yield. But then a yield only happens once a year. And so they would be gone by the time the yield came and it wasn't doubled and they'd be on to the next town and the next town selling that year over year. Um, and I think that's the story people use when selling tech into agriculture is like this industry is always being told this is the latest, greatest thing. It's going to change your lives. Um, and so they're just not, not a very trusting group of people because they've been sold things for, you know, centuries that, that haven't worked. So. I didn't know that that was the history of snake oil salesmen. That's how it was told to me. I mean, I'm sure there's many variations of that story, but that's what it was told to me. I like it. We'll go yeah. with it. <laughs> how how big is this market? I think that's one of the things that people underappreciate in, in some of these things, especially when it comes to ag, is just how big the actual markets are. Absolutely. Dairy, um, it depends who you ask. Uh, globally, it's it's at six hundred billion right now. I think I'm seeing estimates more seven hundred billion and trending across a trillion um, in, in three or four years. So massive, massive market. Um, you know, and as we go into this market right now, I, I think it's it's still growing year over year. Dairy, it's growing about eight percent year over year globally, um, largely because developing markets when you know China and India middle classes grow. Um, dairy consumption always grows when middle classes grow because it's just a consistent way to get protein into your growing families. 
And so we're still seeing that. North America um, is still growing, but we're still you know, leveling off a little bit of drinking milk, but then yogurt and different products are, are still growing at, at a rapid pace. So it's interesting to see how preferences are changing. Um, and there's a lot of opinions about dairy and, and the future of dairy, but you know, it, it's, if you actually look at the numbers, the industry is still doing very, very well. Has the rise of some of these alternatives like oat milk, soy milk, almond milk, has that hurt the industry across North America or not yet? I think it just caused a shift. So yeah, like if you look at drinking milk, yes, you know, the average 29 year old is drinking less milk. Um, they're drinking, and if they're good, in, if they're going to put milk in coffee, you know, they're more likely to put almond or oat than they were before. Um, but going back to that Fairlife example, those kind of what we call value added milk products, um, that's that segment's growing faster than almond, soy, and um, oat together. And so I think what you're starting to see is. <laughs> I guess, I'll, I'll, you know, the data is not exactly there yet, but my anecdotal opinion of what's happening is that dairy was getting blamed for a lot of health problems. Um, people maybe not feeling great and blaming it on dairy. Well, I think we generally have just a food problem where we're, there's a lot of things that are going into you not feeling great. And so I think people thought that if they got dairy out of their diet, then they'd miraculously feel better. And they're not, it's not always the case. And so for some population it is. And so now we're actually seeing people say, you know what, actually the switch to oat milk didn't make me feel any better. So now I'm going to go back to dairy, but I want it to fit my lifestyle more. I want less sugar. I want less fat. Um, I want a different kind of product that, that fits my health, uh, my lifestyle. And so Fairlife geniusly, you know, saw that and, and created, um, Coca-Cola saw that and created Fairlife. But I think you're going to see a lot more brands like that come um, that just respond to these trends of, of kind of, you know, the millennial generation coming back to dairy, maybe um, if they did leave. But yeah, it's interesting to watch. Yeah, it is interesting. I also think um, the emerging emerging markets to me just feel like such an untapped opportunity and, you know, ability to whether it's, you know, North America being the producers or even figuring out how to replicate something in those markets, it just feels like that's a that's a great space to be in. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And a lot of work, you know, in some ways, interesting challenges. So China doesn't have the land to sustain a dairy, you know, dairy for that population. So you're seeing, you've seen New Zealand step up for years, but you know, the amount of, um, the per capita amount of milk production in New Zealand is insane because they're largely supplying the Chinese market as well. So you start to see dairy becoming international um, as those markets grow, which is cool. Wow. And that you have a uh, trans ocean supply chain. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, even there's companies, um, you know, a, a massive company out of Minnesota that is, um, that's largely supplies whey powder um, and formula and things like that to the Chinese markets. But uh, when you turn it into powder, then that 72 hour window, you don't have to work with it anymore. So it's much easier to ship from the US to China. I listened to this podcast recently that I thought was so fascinating. It was talking about how in the US, in Montana, they have the most stringent laws around the sell-by date on milk. And it was originally intended to protect the uh, dairy farmers of Montana, but it's only 12 days after pasteurization. But mm. the neighboring states is all 22 days or 21 days or something around that. And I thought that was really interesting of just how much politics there is in the dairy space because of how big uh, an industry it is in the US. Absolutely, Yes. Um, and we see that a lot between the Canada and the U.S. dairy markets being in both countries. We see a lot of the politics at play. And, you, yeah, even the rules of what's considered, um, you know, good quality, bad quality country to country is very different as well, right? One other on the politics side, have you seen how the whole – I know there was a ton of lawsuits around using the term milk for things like almond milk and oat milk and cashew milk. Where has that landed? 
I have not followed that at all. We've we've just stuck to our dairy milk, so I, I I'm not sure we stayed out of that. <laughs> totally fair. What has been uh, the gnarliest part of building the business to date? I think underestimating the change management of an organization that we would have to be leaders of. Um, You see yourself as a software company early days and you just think we're giving you fantastic software. It should work. Um, But it's the 10 accountants who have to use milk movement to balance, you know, their payroll every two weeks uh, for for producer payroll. It's the 500 drivers in a region who have to use your system every day. Um, It's just the organizational shift of going from either a legacy system or pen and paper to milk movement. Um, and we're, we're kind of ushering that change at the organizational level. So we've had to get really good at um, making sure that the software is only helping people's lives, you know, or, or actually only making an accountant's life better, not worse. Um, and realizing the software is honestly like 5% of what we do in some ways. It's like everything else um, and being a partner to a cooperative. That's been the gnarliest, most eye-opening, and then then the most rewarding when you do that successfully um, to actually see, you know, that we can we can help these cooperatives come into the digital era. I love it. That's great. Well, I, one, one last question that I like to wrap up with in general, has there been any piece of advice or guidance you've been given over the course of your you know life or career that's really stuck with you and our words you live by? Yeah, I, I've been saying this lately, but I, this is more of a, from a founder and now, you know, a CEO of 55, 60 people. It changes like week to week. I think right now we're 56. Um, but my, I'd say to other founders is like, I think there's this pressure to always be doing 16 hour days and to just be running so fast. Um, and I actually like to prescribe to the Winston Churchill philosophy that he had, that, which was if there was no war to be fought, he would just be, he'd be taking baths or um, napping or like in the middle of the day, he would just be sleeping. But then as soon as there was a battle, he was rested. And I like to take that approach into my work is that as soon as my employees need me or my customers need me, I want to be ready. But if you always feel like you have to be doing these 16 hour days to feel worthful or, you know, worthwhile, you're never almost ready for that tough battle. Um, So I tell founders, it's like, your that pressure is only in your own head, you know, get off the track. Um, if you've got three hours in the middle of the day with no meetings, take a walk, go have lunch, like just chill because at nine o'clock something might come up and you need to be on your best. Right. And so it's kind of just, yeah, taking the pressure that we put ourselves under out of it all. Yes. I think there is a massive pushback right now against the whole hustle culture. And what I've talked to people about before too, is if you're always tired, you're never on your best. Like you're never going to do a great job at anything. You're just going to be in that kind of mediocrity space, which is never good. And so it'd be better to get three, you know, even if it's only three hours of amazing work a day, as opposed to eight hours of mediocre time. Definitely, definitely. And, and don't get me wrong. Like, you know, it's there's evenings and weekends. There's there's a lot that goes into it. But it's, yeah, I, I you know, this is a not a nine to five kind of thing. But it's like giving yourself permission at 10 o'clock on a Friday morning just to go take a walk. Like if you have nothing in your calendar, it's it's more about, yeah, I think we're getting better. We're getting actually a better balance between life and work, interestingly, I think, recently. And I think the shift towards remote and even hiring people in all different time zones helps with that because there's no more standard of everyone's in the office together from nine to five or whatever the hours are. Everyone has different working schedules. And as long as you're doing a good job and getting your work done, that should be good enough. Yeah, the link I'll leave you with, I think it's most interesting. We take a temperature check every kind of three months about whether our company wants or employees want to be remote or um, in person. It's like, you know, astoundingly remote, but it's always our top performers that are the loudest about being remote. And they, you know, they might be 45 minutes from our closest office, 
They just say like, I don't want to spend 20 minutes or 30 minutes in traffic a day. And they're usually the highest, you know, achievers. And you're like, all right, if you don't want to, then we're staying. (laughs) We'll listen to you. I've I've found that interesting um, that it's, yeah, they're the ones who are most passionate about getting control of their day. It is. And then the data speaks for itself, right? If they are the high performers. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Rob. This has been really, really interesting. I did not know a lot about the dairy supply chain, but if people want to learn more about you and Milk Movement, where should they go? Yeah, I mean, the second O is key. If you search Milk Movement with two O's, I think you'll find us anywhere. Like We're on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, or just milkmovement.com. Yeah, check us out. And we're hiring all the time. Um, yeah, hiring. I think there might be 15 positions on the website now. Um, globally, you know, we, we tend to stick to North America a lot, but, um, honestly we're hiring anywhere, best people around the world. So vertical SaaS is very hot right now. So if you're looking to join a cool vertical SaaS company, this sounds like a good one. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks, Rob. Cool.